Hello and welcome to Stuff TV. I'm your host, Nick Huzar. I'm also the founder of OfferUp, and I've watched billions of dollars worth of secondhand transactions occur on the marketplace I founded many years ago. And I started thinking a lot about my very existence and how I impact the planet. And I found it really hard to find answers on the internet. So I decided to do something about it, interview really interesting folks to help enlighten us and think about how stuff impacts our everyday lives. And with me today I have Rebecca, do I say Hugh? Yeah. Rebecca Hugh. Uh, and uh, really excited to talk about your company. Uh, I think it's safe to say maybe we call it Robot Recycling. Uh, I think that's how we refer to it. Uh, her company, Glacier, really fascinating company. Uh, especially when you think about the magnitude of things we buy and sell and like where do they end up. And so, uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. I would love to maybe just kind of give us a quick, you know, background and a little bit more about yourself. Like, how did you get into this business? Yeah, absolutely. Well, pleasure to be here, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it was definitely a nonlinear path to get to the point where I decided to start Glacier, but my background is actually in uh, management consulting. And at the time, it was a great kind of foray into all of these different domains of the business world, all of these different industries. And I found myself really drawn um, kind of randomly to two areas, industrial manufacturing and consumer packaged goods. And at the time, I was like, never the twain shall meet. These are two completely unrelated interests. I'm just going to keep indulging both of them and see where it goes. Uh, it turns out that recycling is actually this really weird intersection of both of those spaces. And so I think the seed was planted from a pretty early stage that that might be an area I wanted to explore more. Um, I then got bitten by the tech bug, as so many of us have. Uh, so I moved out to San Francisco to lead a product team at a local services marketplace company called Thumbtack. That was my first big foray into the world of high growth tech startup land. And as soon as I tried it, I was like, I, I can't turn back from this environment. Just the feeling of building something at such high velocity and really scrambling to make a huge impact on the world uh, is something I think I will be looking for for the rest of my life and the rest of my career. Uh, so when I left Thumbtack a few years ago, you know, this was 2018. And at the time, you may recall, there were so many headlines coming out about not only, you know, our imminent climate disaster that we were fast approaching, uh, but at the time also China had implemented what it called the national sword policy. And to give you some context, China used to be the world's biggest importer of recycled goods. They would bring in that stuff, our used bottles, our used cans, reprocess it and turn it into new feedstock to make new materials. Long story short, they were like, Everyone in the world is sending us trash, basically. Mm -hmm. It's too contaminated. We have to landfill or incinerate most of it. We don't want to be the world's landfill anymore. And so until you can clean up your act, quite literally, we're no longer going to take this stuff. Well, and, and they've so had a growing middle class, too, right? It seems like there's been a lot of change in China. So my assumption is they're producing enough of their own trash. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I think this is definitely part of an internal push as well to say, you know, we've got enough of our own problems and we want to be processing our own stuff responsibly. But of course, that while we're doing that, we can't also be um, taking in all of this waste from the rest of the world. Um, and so, you know, that basically overnight through the entire recycling industry into disarray. Obviously, it's Econ 101 when you lose your biggest source of demand for the stuff you're producing. And then, you know, we as a consumer society don't have a way of just 
reducing overnight the amount of stuff we're producing, suddenly these recycling facilities are like, how are we going to stay in business? Um, mm -hmm. And so it felt like a really opportune time to bring new technology into this space. You know, a lot of the folks I've talked to in the industry are really looking for essentially a huge paradigm shift in the way that they think about processing all of the stuff that we throw out in this country. Mm -hmm. Maybe before we get into, I'd love to get into this because it just, you geek out. I was showing my son your, your robotic arms, which he thought that was like the coolest thing. Uh, uh, one thing I always like to share when we, when we start an episode is like, what is the impact of this particular topic? And I think what's really eye-opening is, you know, we will produce as individuals about 128,000 pounds of trash in our lifetime, of which uh, I think only 9% of our waste, I believe, in the U.S. is recycled today. Um, and I think 50% are, sorry, backing up. Not, I just think it's just 9% of our waste ends up recycled. Um, yeah. 9% uh, of our plastics end up recycled and the rest okay. typically gets landfilled or meets some other demise. Yeah. And so I don't think as consumers, I always say we don't always think about what happens when we throw our stuff away. It's very incremental, right? We're just throwing the thing in the trash or throwing it in recycling. And then there's this whole other kind of like journey that our stuff then then goes on. And so, you know, I'd be curious as you thought about like the business opportunity for Glacier, what was kind of like the genesis of that for you? Absolutely. So uh, a couple of reasons why I was really drawn to this space. And, you know, even to set the context, I call myself a reluctant founder oftentimes. Um, you know, rewind back a few years ago when I actually was looking to join another team, it hadn't even really occurred to me to start my own company. Um, but when I met Areev, my co-founder, who had recently left his job as a software engineer at Facebook, now Meta, uh, for similar reasons of climate concern, um, he kind of pitched me on this idea. I offered to do essentially a, a diligence for him on the business, the industry, what he would have to deliver to his customers. And I basically convinced myself over the course of that diligence that this was the opportunity of a lifetime for a few reasons. Um, one is, of course, just the impact that you're alluding to, right? Um, the size of the impact is astronomical. You know, if you look at various reports, uh, the circularity gap report put out by the World Economic Forum says that transitioning to a circular economy will uh, reduce, you know, 39% of the world's carbon emissions. If you look mm -hmm. at carbon, uh, Project Drawdown and all of their list of solutions, and you look at everything that Glacier touches in the recycling and waste management space, um, that's around, you know, 11 or 12% of carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I often get this question, does recycling actually fight climate change? And the answer is absolutely, yes, it does. Happy yeah. to elaborate more there. And then the second piece that I think is really critical for all of us that are working on solutions to the climate crisis is the sense of extreme urgency, right? It depends on exactly what source you're looking at, but I think we've coalesced around this idea that we have five to seven years to prevent irreversible climate change. Some would say we've already passed that point. Mm -hmm. And so while I think it's really important that so many brilliant scientists and engineering minds are working on these moonshot solutions to really drastically bring down our car uh, climate impact on this planet, um, the thing that really stood out to me about recycling is that you can achieve that impact immediately with existing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So one more example here, the UN's IPCC estimates that if we can improve our our world's uh, recycling infrastructure, then by the year 2030, that is in you know six and a half years, uh, that will have the same carbon impact as taking 100 million cars off the road. 
road. That's one in three cars in the U.S. You mm-hmm. know, in contrast, today about two or three percent of the ro- the cars on the road right now are EVs. Right. So to me, right. it was just blindingly clear that if you want to have a huge impact very quickly, this was a very very unique place to yeah. be. Yeah, I think what you said really resonates too because oh. I think. I kind of have, I always like to let people, you know, be clear that I'm not a crazy, like, sustainability person. I think I'm kind of your average person. I care about the topic, and I'm very intrigued. I think a very curious kind of person when it comes to analyzing this. But I think that's kind of the, the thing you have to think through is how can you get there faster? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can rely on existing infrastructure, you can make more of an impact. I think, like, with what your company is doing, like, you're not – having to rethink how we dispose of things. You're just fitting it into an existing process. Um, exactly. I don't know if you've heard of the company uh, uh, Universal Hydrogen. Are you familiar with these guys? I've heard of the them, jet? Yeah. yeah, so he used to be he, he, he used to be the CTO of Airbus, and he went there and said, hey, we can, we, there's no way we can build a whole new fleet of jets to get to this goal by 2050 to be con, you know, like sustainable as, as an industry. But if we can retrofit the jets with hydrogen, now we can now we just rely on you know the infrastructure now you know so I think they just did their first flight a few weeks ago, wow. um, and that's Amazing. really kind of I think it, you know people are clearly kind of spooked out with hydrogen a little bit, uh, but it's a very abundant substance and a lot cleaner like the only byproducts you know water and so absolutely yeah and you know on the topic of existing infrastructure I'll say there's the literal infrastructure and the other thing that's really great about the recycling industry is that the financial incentives are there too right yeah. so there's this question of how do you create really fast, broad sweeping change. Um, you know, a lot of times people talk about recycling as a sort of like feel good sustainability thing, which it is right. And, you know, glaciers based in San Francisco, there's definitely a lot of that sentiment here on the West coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for example, I grew up in suburban Chicago in the Midwest. My co-founder, we grew up in St. Louis, you know, we're no stranger to the fact that different mm-hmm. parts of the country have different attitudes towards yes. something, uh, in green tech. And so what we found in recycling is that it is, possibly the most bipartisan topic I've ever seen, you know, uh, whether it's because you want to help reverse the effects of climate change or because you want to create jobs, which, by the way, you know, processing things and bringing them back into circulation does a lot more of that than sending something to the landfill forever. Um, You know, these recycling facilities at the end of the day, they're in it to, to turn a profit and keep the lights on so that they can keep delivering this impact to the world. And so, you know, for us here at Glacier, one other way to look at our mission is basically to make recycling so obviously profitable that to recycle an object becomes the natural end of life for that item rather than paying to dispose of it in some yeah. other fashion. I'm just intrigued as I talk, talk with various folks like yourself about just these, these new kind of ideas. And I love, I love the, you know, the, the word circular versus like even just kind of recycling, because I think some of the things like this infrastructure we're still using for waste and construction and everything is still old and antiquated, like we, the same, con- I, I did an episode soon on concrete. It's the mm. same mix that was embedded in the 1700s. It hasn't evolved. But mm. what if you could give it different feedstock? What if you could tap into our waste system? What if you could read? I just think there's opportunities now to rethink things versus before. And, and like you said, I think do it in a, in a profitable way. So, but I think it requires you to look, you know, at a kind of macro level and, and figure out what can kind of fit where. And that's always sometimes the hard part you know, when, when I think about CO2 and like, how do you offset that? Sometimes it just doesn't work at scale. Clearly with your, com- your company, like it's so exciting because you can make a big impact right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so may- maybe tell us a little bit more about, you know, how it works. Like, I mean, going all the way back to like, like you said, you didn't, you kind of accidentally 
became a founder and now you're, you're in it. So like, what was the moment where you decided I have to go do this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, for me, the, certainly there was a secondary research process I ran, you know, looking at the economics of recycling facilities and the size of the overall opportunity and, you know, the, the margins on automation and all of that stuff. But I think what really clinched it for me, two things, one was just getting on the phone and cold calling a bunch of recycling facilities. And uh, what was really noticeable was that in talking to about two dozen recyclers, the feedback was resoundingly unanimous, right? Every single person, when I told them we had this idea to build essentially an AI-enabled sorting robot that could you know, sort at high accuracy, high performance, um, high ROI, every single person was like, holy cow, we would use that in a heartbeat if you built that. And, you know, having done many diligences in my past life as a consultant, I've never heard such unanimous feedback that something is this badly needed. Um, so that was definitely compelling. And then the other thing, which, you know, I would encourage all of your audience to do if they haven't done yet either, is um, just visiting a recycling facility, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you had alluded at the top of the call to this feeling that, you know, you just throw your aluminum can in the bin and then some magic happens and it's back on the shelf, right? And in reality, you know, it's people like there's certainly other equipment and other technology in these facilities, but every single facility I've been to has a really sizable staff of people whose jobs it is to just stand there and pick things off the belt. And obviously that's not a great job. Um, it's seen in yeah. uh, the attrition rates, right? Uh, I read an, uh, an interview with the CEO of waste management where he actually says that in every one of their recycling facilities, one of those sorting positions experiences about 500% annual turnover, because oh. it's so grueling, it doesn't pay well, the conditions are, you know, by definition, kind of terrible. Yeah. Um, and so that was yet another underline that, you know, we're essentially helping to supplement a labor force that is rapidly disappearing. Um, and pretty soon, these facilities, if they don't rely on technology like ours, are going to have a really, really difficult, near impossible time of actually processing things in a way that allows them to keep the lights on. Yeah. Well, how does it maybe kind of just walk us through the beginning to end process? So when you, you when you come into a and, and, and maybe for context, you know, are how are you testing this in one facility? You're still pretty pretty young company. So how 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 much have you tested your your, your product? Yeah, so I'll start with some context on how recycling yeah. works. For those of you who have not been in a recycling facility. You put your stuff into the recycling bin and then it gets transported to what's known as a MRF or a materials recovery facility. And these MRFs, think of just big industrial factories and their job is to take this giant mountain of stuff, mostly recycling, oftentimes a lot of trash, and then sort it into constituent commodities like paper, plastic, aluminum, et cetera, that they can then sell to be turned into new material. That sortation process has some amount of mechanical involvement, different types of equipment like magnets or disc screens that can sort kind of by weight. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just a lot of people picking stuff out, sorting them, picking out. A question on that process. I'm assuming is, you know, this is where humans sometimes have a higher error rate. Mm -hmm. Right. When you're sorting, like, is, do you think that's part of the value prop of what your company is doing is potentially, I'm kind of curious on like any early indicators of like, oh, our robots are more efficient. We're just faster at figuring these things out or no. Yeah, it's a great question. So we break accuracy down into a couple of metrics here at Glacier. I would say, 
you know, humans, when you give them objects, we're generally really, really good at detecting what that object is, right? But when you put a person on a conveyor belt for eight hours and they're looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of items, chances are that minute 500, you're going to be a lot worse at both recognizing and picking everything versus in minute one. Um, And I've seen belts where it's just literally a mountain of material and there's no way you're going to be able to get anything in there, right? So robots, I think, are really getting up the learning curve in terms of their identification and their picking ability. And then what they can also offer, which I think is a huge benefit, is just that consistency, not only between minute one and 500, but also, as I mentioned earlier, there's this huge issue of turnover and not being able to even staff. They're not getting fatigued and tired. They don't need their Starbucks after lunch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Sorry. I cut you off, but I was curious on just, again, that kind of, that, that process where that you're sorting. So, so yeah, where does yeah. it go and from there? Sure. And so, you know, basically our robot, we have designed to be as plug and play as possible. You know, if with any hardware, obviously there's going to be some amount of retrofit cost or installation friction, but we, what we had heard from these recycling facilities is that in order for an automation solution to really knock it out of the park, one, the price needs to be right for the job that it's doing. And two, it has to be really easy to get into the facility and kind of just forget about it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you think about if you ever go into a facility, it's just kind of this labyrinth of, you know, belts and other machines and beams and all of these difficult uh, implementation challenges. A lot of machines take hundreds of thousands of dollars to actually fit into a facility. Ours is designed to take up the same amount of space as a person. We install Mm -hmm. it in a day or less. And so there's no downtime to the facility and it can just run. Mm -hmm. So you've got two different components. You have one, this robotic arm, but then you have this AI that you've also built, like maybe explaining, you know, how did that start? How does it, what, what is it learning when it's out there and the robots are moving? What is it looking for? Yeah, I can by the way, send you a photo of this that you can okay, use yeah. as a diagram. Um, if you imagine a conveyor belt coming down the line with a bunch of items on it, uh, the first thing we'll mount is our AI scanner or our AI camera. And that just goes directly over the belt. And it can basically take nonstop footage of what it's seeing and identify effectively in real time this heat map of what the different items are and where they're located on the belt. We can do two really cool things with that data. First is that we can actually pass it downstream to our robot, which then knows, you know, what are the items I should be going after? Where can I pick them up? And then where should I sort it based on what I know it to be? Um, And then the second really interesting use case for this data, of course, is that, you know, up until now, the circular economy has not had any source of truth on what's actually happening to all of our stuff. Right. You can kind of do spot checks here and there, which are really expensive and really slow. Um, you can kind of back into some numbers based on the tonnages that you know are being sold or being landfilled. Uh, but I think this AI also presents a really amazing opportunity for not just recycling facilities, but governments, municipalities, yeah. consumer brands, everyone in the circular economy to get on the same page about what's actually happening to all of our recycling. And from there, of course, we can actually baseline and make progress. Yeah, because you're looking essentially at everything coming through. You're collecting all that data. Whether you are able to sort every little bit of it, that's kind of secondary, right? It's more like you just have this constant stream of input. Right, exactly. And so the data is really powerful. But then, of course, if you talk to these MRFs, these facilities, they are an incredibly pragmatic bunch, which I love. And so a lot of them will also say, like, this data is really powerful. It's really great. Uh, 
but are you going to give me any tools to actually do something about it? And that's where I think the robot really shines. And, and so as the robot, okay, it knows what's coming, then then what, how many variations of the, excuse me, as it's, as it's sorting the goods, whether it's plastic and aluminum, like is it 20 more ways it sorts? Three, you know, I'm trying to think about, you know, how does it know, wh- where does it go from there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our AI is currently capable of identifying commodities that make up about 90% of the recycling stream. And so we've already got pretty much everything that a recycling facility would care about within our AI capabilities, which is great. Um, and then the robot, of course, needs to figure out what what to sort where. So the robot is capable of grasping pretty much any of those items. Um, the physical limitation, of course, is just how many different places can you actually drop these items, right? Yeah. So we have robots in the field now that are doing, you know, three, four, five different sorts, which is also pretty amazing because you can imagine as a person, you could also do that, but it gets really hard to keep track of what's going where, right? Oh, yeah. What's well, even hard at my house to, to figure out what goes where. We have four different, let's see, including we use Ridwell, too. So, yeah, so we have we have compost, trash, recycling, and then we use Ridwell for the plastics that that others don't take. But the hard part I have as a consumer, I think, is still one of the big missed opportunities is what goes where, and oh, yeah. it's sometimes pretty frustrating too when you go, you know, it, you need like a PhD, and even then you can't figure it out because like let's say you go to the Starbucks, go look at the three different bins in a Starbucks and look in there, you'll notice they almost all look the same because everyone nobody knows. And so I still, right. I still think one of the biggest challenges I've observed is manufacturing is built for this global audience. But when it comes to waste management, it's a very regional thing. So what, what happens, you know, where I live in Bellevue, Washington versus where you live in San Francisco, they probably deal with it very differently. So I'd imagine for your product, it's probably not always one size fits all, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, I think the thing that is really great about the architecture we're working with is that you can basically create an AI model that can identify with high confidence what type of item this is or what it's made out of. And then the matter of where exactly that item goes, you can configure with the software on the back end, right? So let's say in one place, I don't know, for example, polypropylene uh, triangle number five plastic is recyclable in another place it's not. We can still detect that it's polypropylene, but what we do with it depends on the particular installation or the local geography. But you're, you're right that it is, you know, one thing that's really striking about waste and recycling is just how localized it is. You know, we don't really have any sort of national mandate around how you're supposed to recycle. And so that is very much a challenge for recyclers, even, you know, county by county, the regulations might be very different. Yeah. I've been talking to a number of folks about just where is the U.S. in terms of policy when it comes to sustainability versus even our, you know, friends across the ocean and Europe. And I think that's still something we can be far more aggressive on is just policy and what we do with recycling. Like there's it's like, oh, yeah, we want to move this direction and be built more sustainable. But what does that even mean? And I feel like hopefully governments or local cities get a little bit more aggressive about it. But it, it doesn't seem like there's really strict mandates in terms of recycling yet. That I've seen. Yeah, not not anything at the, the national level, I would say. Um, I, I will say that having now been in this space for about five years, um, there has been a lot of really exciting movement on the legislative front. So Mm -hmm. to name a couple of examples here in California recently, they passed, um, you know, the truth in recycling 
law or the, the chasing arrows law, um, basically saying, you know, it's a little bit ridiculous that there's no regulation about when we can or cannot print that recycling triangle on things. Uh-huh. So I don't know about you, but I've definitely seen that logo printed on all kinds of things that I'm like, this is definitely not recyclable, but there's no consequence for it. That's right. So now there's finally, you know, kind of a stick to actually enforce that when you say this is recyclable, it actually means something. Um, Another really exciting example is all of the EPR laws that are being passed. And EPR stands for Extended Producer Responsibility. To your point, EPR has existed in the EU for a really long time, and it's now being passed in, I believe, four U.S. states to date. Many more states are debating this law and considering passing it. The premise of EPR is that as a brand or a manufacturer, you should be on the hook for what happens to your packaging at its end of life. Right. Today, you know, Coke or Pepsi or Unilever, any one of these brands, they're putting stuff on the market. It goes somewhere. They put more stuff on the market, you know, ad nauseum. Um, With EPR, there are what's known as, you know, essentially fees or eco-modulated fees where they say, we're going to measure how much of your stuff actually makes it back into circulation. And Mm. if you are really good at making, let's say, aluminum cans that always get brought back, we might not even penalize you for it. On the other hand, if you're making stuff that has like 100% landfill rate, you as a producer need to bear some of that responsibility. So we're actually going to start charging or fining you to cover the cost of all of that impact on our environment and the cost to process. Um, in the EU alone, you know, I think they do something like 3.1 billion euros annually in fines related to yeah. EPR. And so a lot of these brands are now starting to sit up and pay attention and say, okay, it's really important that we actually figure out what's happening to our packaging after we put it on the shelves. Yeah. I think it just, I think that always the challenge with this stuff is, okay, is it saving me time or is it cost neutral? Because uh, if it costs more or it takes more time, no one's going to do it. But I've always been curious, like, where does all this stuff go? And it's it's accumulating locally, right? In these big urban areas where we live, that's where a lot of it is. And so it's there. I mean, you can find landfills that have been around since the 50s. And my, one of my friends was telling me about this, this core sampling of a landfill they were doing. I was trying to think about what that would look like. Because you know, back in the 50s, there was hardly any plastics. So imagine looking at the sample and like, it's probably just got like this film of just like gunk on the top, right? From the last, you know, 20 or 30 years of stuff. Um, But it just seems like, again, like if you can get the right incentives and think, rethink certain things, like, you know, it's the way we build material, the way we end of life things. But if we can start to move more things circular, it just instinctively seems like, there's just one got to be a lot of business opportunity there, a lot of opportunities for jobs. Um, but also I think it's, it's part of it is probably just like you were saying earlier, how do you get into the infrastructure, right? That seems to be a hard part for a lot of these interesting companies is, well, they may work on a small scale. How do you, I'd be kind of curious for your, for Glacier, how have you been finding, it sounds like the value prop is clear, but now you've got to work with different kind of municipalities to, to, you know, get your system in there. Right, exactly. And, you know, one one common misconception is that recycling facilities are predominantly owned by municipalities or local governments. Actually, about 85% of recycling facilities in the U.S. are owned by private companies. Some of them are large publicly traded companies like waste management or public services, but many others are also owned by, you know, some are even family owned, right? They've been operating a facility for for decades or something like that. Um, So while the actual kind of go-to-market motion looks different depending on the type of buyer that you're talking to, You know, at the end of the day, I think the value propositions are very clear. And then we've really honed in on designing our robot from scratch 
to be able to be installed at very low cost, very quickly, right? That was always the intention here. We know, you know, building hardware is really hard. Building industrial yeah. robots for recycling facilities <laughs> is maybe even harder. Yeah. Um, but we've really taken an eye towards simplicity here. And I think that that's what allows us to offer both, both this cost advantage as well as this implementation advantage. Would you say that's probably your biggest challenge is, you know, when it comes to entering and getting your, your robots plugged in is just kind of dealing with, you know, you don't, you don't have a, you know, standard approach every time, you know, because you're dealing with a different city, right? I'm assuming it's a little bit different every time. Yeah, I would say that now, you know, I've probably visited 30 to 40 recycling facilities in person. And despite the variation in what gets accepted and where it goes, I will say that there's probably, you know, 80% of the flow that's pretty consistent from facility to facility. Okay. And so, you know, you had asked kind of what stage Glacier is at as a company. We now have uh, a, a sizable and growing fleet of robots that we've actually successfully installed that are really delivering on their ROI promise that our customers are really happy with and buying more of. Um, I think the focus for this year very much is you know, how do we go from producing robots at the rate we currently are to being able to deploy a fleet of, you know, five to 10 robots every single month. And that's mm -hmm. where I think a lot of the standardization work will come in. You know, how I, I talk often to our team about this idea of Ikea-fying mm -hmm. uh, industrial hardware. Mm -hmm. So how cool would it be if we could make it so standardized that a recycling facility could basically look at a catalog of, you know, four to six different types of glacier robots and say, I want that one, click order. We get some measurements, flat pack and ship it to you. And then you can basically install it, right? Like that's really the end game of what we're looking for when we say plug in. You can hire the guys on TaskRabbit. You know, they're building all the Ikea furniture. They can install the Glacier robots. It's that easy. Exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll give you an indecipherable pamphlet yeah. with a couple of drawings and, and let you have at you it. You got it. Yeah. Well, well, as you think about the future for your company, you know, it's really fascinating. Like you said, you got this product, you start to get traction. Now it's about scaling. Like if you think about the next, you know, five, 10 years, what, what do you hope is happening? Like what, 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 what is the impact do you think you could, you could make? Uh, with Glacier or with, uh, I guess, like the, the entire circular economy, what is happening? Well, yeah, both. So, yeah, where do you think your company is? And then, you know, yeah, what, what do you think, just stepping back about just, you know, it seems like climate is definitely something everyone's talking about. And I think even back when we just connected, it seems to be some really complex thing. And right. so how do you, where do you think yeah, society you is? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I think, you know, in five to 10 years, we definitely are planning to grow our fleet of robots sizably. And I think each of those robots is picking, you know, call it 10 to 20 hours a day, five to six days a week, very, very steadily. And so literally, you know, to date, our, our, our small but mighty fleet of robots has already diverted close to a thousand tons of material from the landfill, right? And that's, you know, us at a very early stage of the company. Mm -hmm. um, so we do expect that overall impact to increase. I think the, the prize that we're really going after is being able to get everyone in the circular economy on the same page. Like, I think that's where you will really see a step function in the improvements to our circular economy. So in my opinion, you know, these recycling facilities are a huge leverage point because they are funneling our entire country's waste into one place and trying to do something about it. Yeah. But, you know, to your earlier point, it's, 
frankly, in my opinion, kind of unfair that we're placing that burden on these recycling facilities when, for example, major consumer brands and manufacturers should also be part of the conversation, right? And the thing is, I've talked to many of them and they do want to be, but they also don't really understand what's going on in these facilities or they're not able to get a baseline on where their particular bottles or cans or packaging are going. And so if we as Glacier can put our fleet of AI cameras across the country and say, hey, we can actually provide you with a heat map of everything and whether it's being recycled or not, then you don't have this sort of he said, she said argument of, you know, well, I think it's this based on geography A. I think it's that based off of the study I did in geography B. Um, You actually have a single unified source of truth that everyone can work off of to actually baseline and then make improvements. Yes, I think that would be fascinating, like you said, because they're all so fragmented and they all kind of have their own areas in which they focus. But if you're able to, in the aggregate, collect that data and share it, there's a lot of power in that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the projects at Glacier that I'm really excited about right now is actually a partnership with two Fortune 500 consumer brands, as well as a recycling facility on the East Coast and Glacier. And we're all coming together because these two brands are interested in transitioning their packaging from non-recyclable to fully recyclable over the course of the next 12 months. But for them, as they've said over and over again, the issue is it's one thing to make a package that you know is theoretically recyclable. The real question is, are consumers in our recycling facilities actually successfully recycling it? And so, you know, we're launching a series of outreach campaigns, pilots, marketing initiatives. And then we as Glacier can actually measure on an item by item basis whether that effort had anything to do with how people are actually recycling. So this truly is kind of at the cutting edge forefront of bringing together all of these different stakeholders. Yeah, I, I'm get, I get a lot of energy, like I said, just doing this podcast and talking to people because you can see how the different parts fit. But they don't always know that because they're working on their own things. And so that's kind of what that was my own observation over the summer was like, OK, this is kind of a complicated topic. You have to look at it end to end. You have to do a lot of work, which for most people are not going to take the time to go figure that out. But I think it's I just see a lot of opportunities again to kind of rethink things that have been done in the past and say, oh, wait, wait, we can do this differently. And I think it takes companies like like yourselves. It's you're able to you know deliver this awesome value prop at the same time, pulling this data to help kind of connect the dots, which I think is just fascinating. Absolutely. Well, I try to think of any other topics we haven't uh, touched on so far. I mean, we hit quite a bit. Yeah, this is great. Maybe uh, overall tips or things that people watching this might be kind of curious about. Um, things they yeah. should think about. Like you said, you, we almost, I almost need my own mini sorting robot at home. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes we get asked if we're ever going to move further upstream into the consumer household. And it's definitely something that I would be personally interested in. You know, I think one of the issues, many issues with the way recycling is currently collected is that, you know, it all gets jumbled up by the time it gets to the facility, right? So I, you know, my, my co-founder, Areeb, always talks about how he lives in a, um, a multi-unit building in San Francisco, and he and his wife are really fastidious about what they put in their bins, but then their neighbors maybe don't do such a good job. And yeah. he was like, it pains me to no end that all the hours we put into sorting are kind of wasted because it gets tossed into the same. A one big dumpster. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, so a couple of tips, I think, for just... Your average consumer about recycling. Um, one is that 
kind of counterintuitively, if you're not sure whether something should be recycled, don't recycle it. You know, there's this phenomenon called wish cycling in the industry where you're like, well, you know, maybe someone on the other hand and can do something with this thing. I don't know. Uh, and the answer is they probably can't. Right. And so you're actually creating probably a lot of headaches and pain for the people down the line that have to do with this thing that isn't actually that recyclable. Mm -hmm. um, so you're making the job a lot easier when you just recycle the stuff you know is recyclable. Um, second thing, uh, recycling facility fires are a really serious issue. And the prevalence of fires has gone up a huge amount over even the past couple of years. Uh, anecdotally, it seems like the majority of these issues come from batteries. And so, you know, I don't know about you. I'm one of those people that has just this kitchen drawer at home with yeah. a mounting, yeah. with a mounting pile. I'm always of worried it's going to catch fire too, but it never does. Right. So exactly. Well, the thing is that, you know, when you do put that battery in your recycling bin and it gets taken to the recycling facility, oftentimes they have machines that will compress or do other things to the material. And that battery will heat up very quickly and just combust and start a fire. So, oh. you know, we've talked to facilities that say they're dealing with on average as often as one to two fires a week. Right. It's just a huge a huge issue and also obviously very dangerous for the folks. Working I wonder why this is more of an issue in the last number of years. I mean, clearly the more things you have, I, you know, two little kids. I mean, everything requires batteries. Right. Right. Uh, I just, exactly. I didn't know if this is just a trend that's been happening because there's more electronics in the world or something changed during COVID. I don't know. It's a good question. You know, I'm not sh too sure of that either. I'd be curious to look at electronics consumption because that might be part of it. And then I also wouldn't be surprised if as these recycling facilities have moved towards kind of more sorting at scale, mm -hmm. they have more equipment basically along the way and fewer people who can actually monitor these types of, of hazardous items. Uh, one of the other cool things about the AI, of course, and a use case that we, we plan to work on soon is the ability to alert you towards hazardous materials, mm -hmm. right? So these facilities, you know, we talked to a facility locally that had a huge fire off of one battery a couple of years ago. And they ended up doing, I think it was like a $4 million oh. facility repair. And they were down for months because of it. So for that facility, the idea of having AI that can constantly be scanning for these types of problematic materials is hugely valuable. I could see that. Yeah. I, I remember in the early days of OfferUp, once we started to get a lot of scale, you know, once you become kind of a target, then people try to take advantage of that. And you name it, I've, I've seen it like every kind of weapon and everything. And now it's, you can't find that at all, but it's amazing the things that people would try to do and try to hide something, right? Like, Oh, I'm, I'm posting an iPhone and look in the back and there's a gun or something like this. Oh, terrible. How do you get rid of that? Right. And I think, so we've done it. We had to do it initially manually with people, but then, then eventually we got more automated. And then, you know, there's a lot of many, many layers now of prevention, which I think has really cleaned up the marketplace a lot, but I can see that as a big, similar challenge to like a, a part of your value prop too, is like, how do you sort through all these things and figure out what's in there? Cause I'm sure you see it all. I mean, people throw everything away, right? So it's all oh, in there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, even the idea that there are people on the other end sorting through your recycling, hopefully is enough to give a lot of people pause about what they're putting in their bins. Right. When I, when I tell people that we're building, you know, AI-enabled robots to automate sorting and recycling facilities, a very common answer I get is, oh, I thought that's already how it worked, right? And so it just, it doesn't occur to folks that someone else has to deal with your trash on the other side. Um, I talk to recycling facilities, every single one that I visit, I always ask them, you know, what's the weirdest thing or the most troubling thing that you found on your conveyor line? And you can imagine the answers are very similar to what you said. Body parts? Oh, 
body parts, certainly a lot of weapons, guns, knives, whatnot. Um, uh, an uh, example I use often is one facility told me they found a grenade rolling down their line. Mm. Uh, I think this was last year, so they evacuated and called the bomb squad. Another facility mentioned that they had um, found basically something that had a sticker on it that said, you know, radioactive material property of the U.S. Navy or something. Oh, like my God. That. So, you know, just things like that where you're like, this is definitely there. there is probably not enough hazard pay in the world to cover, you know, the, the issues with doing this type of job. Well, and the other thing, maybe wrapping up a few things to that I was thinking about too, is just, if you think about where the world was even a hundred years ago, I was, was, what was I doing? Oh, yesterday I was with my daughter and we were in the car driving somewhere and I was like, Hey, you know, this is such a, you shouldn't take this for granted how fast we got here. Cause and she's like, yeah, dad, a hundred years ago, we would have been on a horse right now. I said, yeah, pretty much. Um, they think about what life was like back then. We, we were talking about how your tribe back then was kind of how far your horse could go. Right. Mm-hmm. So you would maybe what, how far would you go in a day? 10 miles? Like, and so everything in your world was like within 10 miles, you, you ate there, you like, that was mm-hmm. it. And now you just fast forward. You know, if you look at the history of humanity in a very short period of time, all this stuff has kind of happened. And so, I, I go back to, again, there's still the words infrastructure. Like we have this antiquated infrastructure that needs to evolve to meet the demands of where we are today. And like, we're never going back to horse and buggy. Like we're not going to go back to that, but how do you, you know, take what seems to be like, everything just kind of seems very one way today for the most part. Well, statistically 99% of stuff's not getting recycled plastics. Um, it just seems like there's just a lot, to, a lot of invention in that process. Right. Yeah. And I think if you, if you think about this circular economy, which is currently kind of a linear economy, there are the people that are putting the stuff onto the market and the people responsible for it when it comes off the market. Right. And when you look at the advancements in manufacturing, you know, consumer brand packaging, there, it's just it's taking off. Right. The, the number of new types of packaging we're creating um, is just astronomical. Um, and yet, to your point, the infrastructure to actually handle that. Um, they haven't been given the tools to really respond nimbly, right? And I've talked to recycling facilities that have literally said, you know, I just kind of wake up and if Amazon happens to have put out a new type of packaging, I guess that's the day I'm going to figure out what I do with it, right? Um, And so Glacier really sees itself as giving those recyclers the tools to keep up with all the innovations happening at the beginning of that linear economy, as well as giving everyone you know, the tools to actually baseline and measure their progress. Of course, you know, I think we're really good as a society at responding to metrics and you're incentivized to yeah. improve those metrics. So if we can even give those numbers to the people in charge of making improvements, um, we've already seen a lot of enthusiasm and willingness to kind of step in and look at those numbers together and figure out a yeah. plan for, for progress. Well, you can't improve what you can't measure. And I think that aspect of your business is is awesome because you're going to, it's going to be very insightful as you start to aggregate more and more of this. And that will finally give somebody you know, the ability to say, okay, here's how we're going to move the needle. Right. Um, Absolutely. Trying to think of anything else we didn't cover, but this was really, this was awesome. Uh, just really comprehensive. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. You're a, you're a great facilitator. <laughs> I'm trying, but uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Rebecca, for being here and like just a fascinating company and like a massive impact potential, I think. And there's not a lot, a lot of companies out there that can really, like you said, fit right in the existing infrastructure and have the ability to make an immediate improvement. So I just, I wish you the best of luck. I think it's such an awesome company. Thank you so much, Nick. And thank you for making Stuff TV as well. I think it's a really, really important message that needs to reach a lot more people than it currently does. So I appreciate it. Thank you.